Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Spring Meadows Adult Sunday School. We're continuing our studies of the attributes of God, and today we're on lesson four. And before we start, let's just do a little bit of review. Uh, we've talked about God's aseity, that God is independent of things outside of himself. He's self-contained, that he is a-se. That's the Latin word we learned that means from himself. And last week we talked about God's simplicity. That's where we learned that God's attributes are identical to him, that they do not exist outside of him. We learned that God is not partly this and partly that, that whatever he is, he is entirely. And we talked about the fact that God possesses unity in his essence. That's just to say there's one essence, one power, one will in God, that he is indivisible, inseparable in his operations. And we talked about distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, and the one God. And one of the things I, I want to let you know is what I'm trying to do here is to help us to build a theological toolbox as it were. So um, if you haven't seen or heard the last several lessons, it's a good idea because these lessons are building upon one another. Oops, sorry. <laughs> um, and a theological toolbox comes in handy, you know, if you're talking to an unbeliever, you know, and they say, what is this Trinity thing you're talking about? What? Who's Jesus? What do you mean he was human and divine? So that's what these lessons are for. And, and they also help you to recognize unorthodoxy or uh, heterodoxy or even heresy whenever you see it. So that's really kind of what we're doing here. So if you haven't seen the last several lessons, it's probably a good idea. Let's, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father, we... Thank you that you reveal yourself in Scripture, and we pray that as we learn more about what and who you are, that you would also draw us closer to you, and that that would change us, that uh, we would love you more, that we would be in awe, and we would give you the glory you deserve. So we ask that you be with us this morning as we study. We pray in your name, amen. So... If we affirm that God is essentially a perfect being, one who lacks nothing, and if we affirm his character to be ase, that was two weeks lessons ago, from himself, then he is not in any way limited by anything outside of himself. And this is number one on your handout. So it would be a limitation, a limitation placed on God if he was able to be constrained by time or space or human's choices. God is not able to be constrained by anything. And one way to articulate this truth is to affirm that God is infinite. So first, God is infinite in relation to himself. And we would call that God's absolute perfection. All that God is, he is ad infinitum. There's another Latin word. That means again and again and again and again. For Whatever he is, he's, he's perfect ad infinitum. 
So infinity does not mean that God is really, really big, although that's often what comes to mind. Infinity is not the enlargement of a known quantity, like continually adding one to the highest number you can think of. Infinity is, uh, is a negation. Infinity means not finite. God is infinite, not finite, and he's perfect in all his attributes. There's no end. They're immeasurable. So today, we'll be speaking of the third, according to my list, of God's incommunicable attributes, God's infinity in regard to space and time. So let's start with, and this is number two in your handout, God's infinity in regard to space is known as his omnipresence. Omnipresence refers to God relative to space, created space. And space-like time is a part of creation. Omni equals all, and presence equals presence. It means that God is present or that he coexists. That's really more proper to say that he coexists everywhere. Now, we're apt to think that God fills the entire universe which he created and then goes just a little bit farther than the edges of the universe, but God cannot be contained by space. You cannot measure the distance between God and some point in the world. And we've already uh, determined that God has no body, no parts, and that tells us that he is not a spatial being. And this is number three in your handout. Prior to creation, there was no awareness. There was no space as we know it. There was only God, and he was not anywhere. He simply was or is. So since he was all that there was, there was no where relative to his existence. God does not need space and is not affected by space. And by the way, creation cannot lock its creator out of creation. So God's omnipresent doesn't mean that he stretches all over space, but rather that he is unlimited in his being. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and yet is present at every point of space with his whole entire being. This is number four in your handout. God cannot be contained in creation. He cannot be contained. The universe cannot hold him. When God created all things out of nothing, he did not have to move out of the way to make room for the world. He is where it is. So God's, present, God's presence is everywhere within creation, but God does not dwell within creation. And we can understand from this that God is both in every space and yet beyond every space. As spirit, God does not occupy any place in the sense that physical objects occupy space. God has no spatial location at all for all space belongs to creation and exists in him rather than he in it. And we see this, for example, in scripture verses like 1 Kings 8.27, where at uh, Solomon's dedicatory prayer, he says of the new temple, but will indeed, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you 
much less this house I've built. And so King Solomon's insight here was very profound. Although he built a temple for God at God's instruction, Solomon was saying, God, we know that you transcend our experience and being and that building a box in which to meet and worship you is in one sense absurd, yet you have graciously ordained it. And that is the mystery of meeting God. He is everywhere and fills everything. A.W. Tozer says, Few other truths are taught in the Scripture with as great clarity as the doctrine of the divine omnipresence. Those passages supporting this truth are so plain that it would take considerable effort to misunderstand them. This is number five on your handout. Another term used to describe attribute of omnipresence is immensity. Immensity, it comes from the Latin word immensus, which means immeasurable, and I've spelled it on the board here for you. So immensity is a good way to think of God's awareness. Immensity characters, characterizes God as intrinsically immeasurable, as the I am who existed prior to the creation of space and time. Whereas omnipresence suggests God fills every part of created space with his being, the attribute of immensity stresses that God's being is not subject to any limitations. Uh, is this, this number six? I think so. This is number six on your handout. Omnipresence emphasizes God's imminence, while immensity emphasizes his transcendence. There is nowhere God is not, and I've spelled transcendence for you here too. There's nowhere where God is not, and there's no way that God can be contained by space or by time. The poetic philosopher Hildebert of Lavarden said in about 1100 AD, God is over all things, under all things, outside all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, wholly above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining, holy within, filling. And Psalm 139 has a well-known description of God's omnipresence. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. So there is... No going from or fleeing God because he is present everywhere in his imminence. God doesn't just see into every place. He acts in all places. All that God is can be found in every place. And by the way, the wicked in hell are not separated from God's presence, only from his benevolence. Revelation 14, 9-11 says, They will drink the wine of the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb. So the worst thing about hell is the presence of God. We need to realize that those who are in hell will desire nothing more than the absence of God. Hell reflects the presence of God in his mode of judgment, in his exercise of wrath. And that's what Jesus saves us from. So speaking of hell, omnipresence is an attribute of God alone. No creature possesses it. So, it's something that Satan does not have. 
okay? Many Christians unconsciously think of Satan as being omnipresent, knowing all and being everywhere. He isn't. He's, he's created. So when we think of him as, as omnipresent, we're elevating him to a position he doesn't have, giving him an attribute that belongs only to God. <clears throat> and this is number seven on your handout. God is bigger than the universe and beyond it, and yet at the same time, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Transcendence, that concept of transcendence evokes pictures of God as high and lifted up, exalted. Imminence, on the other hand, connotes God being near and with us in covenant. So it is the special presence of God that distinguishes the Lord's people from all others on the face of the earth. Where has Jesus promised to be present? The answer he gives in Matthew 18.20 is that he'll be present in his church where two or three are gathered in his name. He is wherever, his special presence is wherever, wherever his true church is. He is in, in the midst of the assembly of his people. And so the question I ask is, do we wish to be where Jesus is? So, if you remember our lesson from last week, that God has no parts. That's the doctrine of simplicity. So he is not spatially divisible. God's essence is always everywhere, holy and completely present. And note the word always. That's a time component. This is number eight on your handout. Another term you might see used in the place of omnipresence is ubiquity. Ubiquity equals the fullness of his being is equal at all times and in all places. The idea of his simultaneous, simultaneous presence everywhere. Ubiquity refers to God being present everywhere in his entirety at the same time and all times. And this should not surprise us considering that time and space goes together as we learn from Einstein's theory of relativity. So now let's talk about infinity in relation to time. So looking at God in regards to time is known as God's attribute of eternity. And most of what I have said about God's immensity relative to space can be transferred to the notion of God's infinity relative to time. And this is number nine on your handout. Because God is self-existent, because he's ah say, he exists eternally in his ontological ad intra. Okay, we're trying to develop some theological grammar here. Ad intra means, uh, it actually comes from opera ad intra, which means works inside the Trinity without considering creation. Who is God in himself? I'm hearing some bubbling back here on the speaker. I don't know what that is. Um, so God also exists omnitemporally. Omni equals all, and temporally equals in time. So that is to say imminently. Add extra. When we say add extra, we mean God's external works. So he exists omnitemporally in time, at every point in created time. So from a temporal perspective, God is simultaneously in all places at all times. So the God who is eternal in essence is also active in time, 
but he's not limited by time. That is to say, God completely transcends time and has no temporal location. God exists out of time since he created it in what many theologians say is a single timeless present. Since God is not bound by time or limited by it, he sees all time at once. And by the way, this is going to become real important, this concept here. This is a building block as we go towards God's omniscience. He knows all because he's everywhere at once. Well, not only that, he decreed it all, okay? Um, so typically, a lot of scripture speaks of God in terms of both his existence prior to creation and his everlasting activity in creation. For example, Isaiah 57:15 says, For thus the high, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Or Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Or in Hebrews 1, verses 10 to 12, we see, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So last week, we looked at God's attribute of simplicity, which, which affirms that God is a being without parts. This attribute says that he is also without parts with respect to moments of time. His existence cannot be measured by a division of moments. God doesn't increase, he doesn't decrease. So there's no, time is meaningless. It's created by him. This is number 10 on your handout. If God is to be ase from himself, and if he's to be one and simple, that's the doctrine of unity and simplicity, then there cannot be other things that God's transcendence essence requires. He requires nothing, okay? Or needs. He can't be affected by, by them. Things like time or space. So the attribute of self-existence, a seity suggests and requires the eternality of God. So you see how these doctrines just, they just build right upon one another, okay? So God lacks any temporal location or winness. He doesn't endure through time. He does not have past moments that no longer exist, nor does he wait in anticipation for future moments to come in existence like us temporal creatures do. And when time words occur in the scriptures, they often refer to our time, not to his. For example, 2 Peter 3.8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. However, God accomplishes his purposes in the fullness of time. Add extra, okay? You're starting to see how important that add, when we, when we have God talk, you can say, are you talking add intra or add extra? When we talk about his activity in time, we're talking add extra, okay? So the biblical narrative relates a historical succession of events 
So history is a linear pattern of events beginning at creation and reaching a climax in the, the work of Christ, his incarnation, his resurrection, continuing on to the last judgment and concluding in the linear, in the eternal state. This is number 11 on your handout. So God works from our perspective in a temporally successive pattern. Temporally successive pattern. The sequence is foreordained by God's decree, but he brings it about to pass in time. He is both inside and outside of the temporal box, a box that can neither confine him nor keep him, keep him out. And you may think this is obvious, but you would be amazed at the number of theologians who want to argue, for example, that God is captured by time. And, and, um, and then they conflate that back up to his ad, ad intra existence. So this all leads us to Jesus. You know, anytime we talk about these attributes, we, we want to say, what does this mean about... And by the way, that's why most of the creeds were written. Most of the creeds like the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, they were written to protect who and what Jesus is. So, first of all, we've established in previous lessons that to suggest that the Son is, is any less than the Father is to fall into heresy. He is the same substance of the Father. Okay, that's what the doctrine of simplicity was about. So we see that, for example, in Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's Jesus, okay? He's the same essence as the Father. So at Christmas, we celebrate God really and truly entering our time and space. Add extra. The eternal becomes temporal. The finite becomes finite. The word that created all things became flesh and dwelt among us, says John 1.14. This is known as the incarnation. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven to be born of a virgin, to go about the earth for 33 years and to hang upon the cross, and yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. So why the incarnation? This is number 12 on your handout. First, in order to save us, God had to become man. The divine son assumed a genuine human nature in order to perfectly obey God's law, in order to fill the covenant of works as the second Adam. You might often hear that referred to as God's act of obedience. His act of obedience was where he was actively being obedient in our place, okay? And then to suffer and die on the cross, a vicarious atonement in our place. Okay, that's what vicarious means. It means in our place. And you, you might hear that referred to as God's passive obedience. Okay? And only Christ as God could bring a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value that would satisfy God's wrath. He suffered an infinite amount of punishment in a finite amount of time. Now, if we look in Philippians 2.7, it says that at the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself. Or if you're using the ESV, it says he made himself nothing. Those are both legitimate translations of the 
Greek verb canoe or canoeo. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's written on your handout. But this concept must be interpreted carefully in a way that does not contradict the rest of Scripture. And this is number 13 on your handout. An increasingly prevalent teaching in charismatic circles is the doctrine of kenoticism. Okay? The doctrine of kenoticism, it could also be called kenosis theory, is the heretical, it's heretical, teaching that in the car- incarnation, the Son divested himself of some or all the attributes of deity, making him less than fully divine and so not truly divine. It declares that Jesus is not fully God. So what's the problem with that? The kenosis theory destroys the Trinity, okay, the unity of God. If Jesus entered himself of the divine attributes, he can no longer be a divine subsistence in the Trinitarian life. That leaves us two-thirds of God, okay? That's why we looked at simplicity last week. And much of the weird theology that surrounds the heretical word-faith movement is based on a canonic understanding of the incarnation that says, since Jesus left his powers and attributes behind and lived as a mere man, we born-again believers are just as much an incarnation of God as Jesus was. So says Kenneth Copeland. And by the way, there's at least five Kenneth Copeland churches in Las Vegas. So what about Jesus' omnipresence? Didn't he have to divest himself of that attribute in order to be incarnated to a real human body? Didn't he need to cease being everywhere present so that he could enter this world as a man? Wasn't his omnipresence necessarily suspended when he was placed in a manger? No, no, no. This is number 14 on your handout. There was no vacancy in the Trinity during our Lord's earthly ministry. The incarnation was a miracle of addition, not subtraction. The Son took on humanity. He did not divest himself of deity. He didn't parachute, as it were, out of the Trinity. You know, and I wish the Bible used that as it were too. As it were means I'm using a metaphor. So when I say God parachuted, that's, I'm trying to communicate to you in word pictures, okay? So Reformed theology says the context of Philippians 2 makes it very clear that what he emptied himself was not his deity nor his divine attributes, but his prerogatives, his glory, and his privilege as he humbled himself for us by adding a human nature to his divine nature, he willingly cloaked his divine glory under the veil of human nature that he took upon himself. And it's not that the divine nature stops being divine in order to become, become human. And why is that based on what we've studied? Dude, don't split the essence. Okay, that's what I taught you last week. Whenever someone talks about splitting the essence of God, for example, by the sun perishing, that divides the essence. Dude, don't split the essence. So in John 17, 5, we see that Jesus asked for the return of his glory. He never mentions the return of his power or his attributes because he still retained them. This is number 15 on your handout. The doctrine of the two natures of God, known as the hypostatic union, maintains that Jesus possessed a full undiminished human nature and a full 
undiminished divine nature, which were not combined, were confused into some new nature, but were added to each other forever. Jesus is forever God and man, okay? Yet remaining distinct in the one person, Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who, person with two what's, two natures. Last week we mentioned that the Trinity is one what and three who's. Now we have one who with two what's. He's got two natures. So when we think about the incarnation, we don't want to get the two natures mixed up and think that Jesus had a deified human nature, you know, like he was Superman, you know, so he just kind of, it was a breeze for him to walk through life as a, no, he was a real human being, okay? And we don't want to think that he had a, a humanized divine nature, that his divine nature was somehow minimized. We can distinguish them, but we can't tear them apart because they exist in perfect unity. This is number 16 on your handout. Christ's human nature stayed human, and Christ's divine nature stayed divine. And those two natures did not communicate to each other, but rather to the person of Christ. Got a little diagram up here for you. Here's the person. It was indeed the second person of the Trinity who had a divine nature. He added a human nature. And what we associate with the human nature is a body. Okay, the second person of the Trinity added a body and a soul. Okay, so hopefully graphically you can, that helps you see what's happening here. Um, and this doctrine is called the communication of properties. The Reformed tradition, classic distinctive, is that God is always and ever God and man is always and ever man. In other words, this is always the human nature that communicates to the person. This is the divine nature, but they never mix, okay? Jesus is fully human, fully divine. So even in the unity of Christ, the two natures remain unmixed. There's a lot of heretical doctrines that say, we have, now we have a hybrid nature. The hybrid nature is it's called monophysitism. I know that's kind of irrelevant, so. Reformed theology, this is number 17 on your handout. Reformed theology argues that the divine son, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is fully and personally, it is the son, personally, who's united to, but never totally contained or swallowed up within the human nature, and therefore, even in the incarnation, his divine nature is to be conceived of as beyond or outside of the human nature. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in question 48, since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the human humanity he has taken on, but at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally personally united to who his humanity, the hypostatic union. And for this reason, and this is number 18 on your handout, the Reformed argue that Christ cannot be present bodily in the Lord's Supper because he remains bodily, reigns bodily from heaven. It is Christ's ubiquitous divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, that, is, that enables us to commune with Christ and to feed his body and blood in the sacrament. So when we partake of this, 
The wine stays wine and the bread stays bread, okay? It doesn't turn into Jesus because Jesus is not, his spirit, his body is not ubiquitous, okay? Now the Lutherans, you may have often wondered what's the difference between us and Lutherans. They believe that what can be said about Jesus' divine nature can be said about his human nature. The two natures communicate to each other, okay? So they say, we say they just communicate with the person. They say the natures can communicate with each other. So that what can be said about the divine nature can also be said about the human nature. The two natures communicate with each other. They mix with each other. That's why the Lutherans emphasize the bodily presence of Christ's body and blood by reason of the communicated omnipresence. We say omnipresence is here. But they say because that is communicating over here, now the Lord's physical human nature, his body and soul can be ubiquitous. It can be present simultaneously at every communion in the world that's taking place at all times, okay? But is that heresy? No, but they're really pushing the envelope in my opinion. Um, they say that what can be said of the person can be said of the particular nature. Therefore, Lutherans say Christ's humanity can be said to be ubiquitous everywhere. This is number 19 on your handout. The Reformed thinking is that the finite human nature is incapable of receiving or grasping infinite attributes, such as omnipresence. And by the way, these two natures in Christ, they don't switch on and off by some toggle switch deep inside Jesus' consciousness. The human nature doesn't limit the divine nature, nor does the divine morph the human nature into something else. Rather, these two natures, with all their properties, commune with the person. Okay? who then performs actions according to both natures. And it certainly appears in Scripture that one nature is reflected more in certain actions than others. So, for example, when sleeping in a boat reflects his human nature, and walking on water reflects his divine nature. Yet, while sleeping in a boat, he upheld the world as the second person of the Trinity. And while walking on water in his divine nature, he used real human feet. And all of this really safeguards the transcendence of Christ's divine nature. It cannot be contained, especially not in a, a human nature, okay? And it also protects the genuineness of the human nature. It does not possess the attributes reserved for d divinity. And that means Christ's obedience was true obedience, earthly obedience, and it was free and voluntary. Uh, so, and this is number 20 on your handout. Remaining what he was, fully God, he became what he was not, fully man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity, and when they say in him, they mean the body. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And here's how uh, Puritan John Owen put it. He says, Each nature operates him according to its essential properties. 
The divine nature knows all things, upholds all things, rules all things, acts by its presence everywhere. The human nature was born, yielded obedience, died, and rose again. But it is the same person, okay? The same person that, that acts all these things, the one nature being no less than the other. And a common misunderstanding is to speak as if the cross momentarily divided the Trinity. And this is number 21 on your handout. There was no division in the Trinity when the Father forsook Jesus at Golgotha. The mystery of divine perichoresis, the mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I've spelt it up here if you need help, okay, remained intact, okay? And that's what the doctrine of simplicity is all about. The, the essence of God is indivisible. We can say God the Father forsook His Son according to the Son's human nature and the Father was never separated from His Son ontologically according to the Son's divine nature. Father and Son remained one in being, love, and purpose even as it pleased the Father to bruise Jesus as He died for our sins. This is number 22 in your handout. The important key concept in this doctrine is that whatever Christ did, he did as a whole person, okay? Whatever he did, add extra, he did as a whole person. For instance, for instance when his human body was beaten, tortured, and died, he experienced it as a whole person. In other words, things which only one nature does can be considered to have been done by Christ himself. So that even though God cannot be killed, it can be said that God died for our sins. We have hymns that declare that. But only the God-man could die for our sins because only the eternal Son of God himself can provide a sacrifice that can deal with the internal punishment our sins des deserve. So basically what this whole thing is to say is that persons act, not natures, okay? That's why when you read Scripture, we don't know which nature is toggling on or off unless, unless it's just so obvious. You know, sometimes when you see the human nature and the body, oh, that's, his, that's his, when he sleeps or when he weeps, okay? So because of the truth of these two natures, we can biblically say God the Son is ubiquitous and immense, filling everything with all of himself always or he's in a fixed geographical location bodily right now as we speak we can say christ is infinite or christ is finite we can say he existed from eternity or he was born in bethlehem jesus is the i am ah say simple omnipresent and eternal god Ooh, this gets me. yet he is our kinsman redeemer, the second Adam who atones for our sins. <laughs> Sorry, I was hoping he wouldn't do this. He atones for our sins on the cross in his human nature. This is number 23. And right now as we speak, Christ is present with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God's presence will not be realized until Christ returns and the new heavens and new earth descend. On that day, when our faith becomes sight, we will 
gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever, for all for eternity is, is the word I have in my list here. And we, in Revelations 22, 4, it says, and we will hear, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's it. Any questions? Yes. Here comes the microphone. This is not a question, it's just an observation. The word awesome seems to me to be overused. The really only truly awesome thing that that I'm aware of is the, the Trinity. It's it's so awesome it's really hard to wrap our minds around that. And we accept that in faith and we do and and, and what the scriptures tell us about the Trinity. Well but, but to, did you hear people saying that? Well, oh, that's so awesome, and this is so awesome. It kind of I would I would suggest that the more awesome thing is the incarnation. It's well, hard that, enough to wrap your well, mind around a Trinity, absolutely. but that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. I mean, that's why so many heresies abound. It is it's really hard to wrap your, your mind around. It's mind-boggling. Yes, thank you. Would you? I got a question back here. Mark, is there a is there a book that you can recommend that we could understand the vacancy in the Trinity during the Lord's ministry? The incarnation was a miracle. yeah. You can start with the Westminster Conf standards. I mean, the Westminster standards they don't really explain it in detail like I've done it, but they essentially say that Jesus, what Jesus is. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, he never stopped being. And, and let me put it to you like this, okay? Jesus did not stop being. We needed Jesus to be God more at the crucifixion than any other time. He needed to be God to, to uh, make his sacrifice of, of infinite value, okay? So you can just start using a little bit of logic, um, yeah, there's a lot of books. I mean, uh, one of the books I've been reading by Matthew Barrett. What's the name of that book, Terry? None Greater. I mean, that's a pretty good book. I mean, I've used a lot of sources. But let me just say this. I think the Westminster Standards are a pretty good place to start and maybe not go into a lot of detail like this. Maybe you could get G.I. Williamson's book on... Um, um, the Westminster Confession or the Shorter Catechism. But things like the hypostatic union. I mean, G.I. Williamson has a great graph, you know. He does it like this that shows Jesus. This is the person of Jesus. And at the incarnation, he took on flesh. And he continues forever Flesh and divine nature united. That doesn't say there was no vacancy in the Trinity. I just use those words to, to give it emphasis. Does that help? I, yeah, I, ne I never understood that there was no vacancy. I never understood that until just, just now. Well, this is really important stuff. It is. Okay? I know it is. You, they are united. Those two natures are united with Christ forever. That's why... 
we say he reigns bodily from heaven as we speak. Okay? He was, uh, he never ceased being divine. He never ceased being God. And that is an important thing. And this is one of the things what, that happens when people are presented with these complex doctrines is heresy starts, starts arising, okay? Uh, one of the big ones we talked about was Arianism. That's why the Nicene Creed was developed. That's essentially the equivalent of Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the Son was created. He's not divine, okay? Um, any other questions? There's a question back here. Hi, Mark. Hi, um, Jonathan. Two quick ones. Uh, first, what was the answer to number six? Six was... That. with us. God with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, that's seven. Six, about omnipresence and immensity. Oh, I'm sorry. That was on number... Yeah, six. I'm sorry. Six was transcendence. Okay, thank you. Um, and the second was, I, I zoned out for a bit, sorry, but I, on the board up there under the human nature, you have written body and soul. Did, did you say that when Christ um, was incarnated, he received a body and a soul? Yes, sir. It's in the confession. That's why I say start with, you don't have to go buy a book. I mean, you can download the Westminster Confession of Faith. It may be a little cryptic, but he received a reasonable, he was a real man in every way, okay? He was, when we say hu fully human, body and soul. Yes, we have a question up here. Say what? Which, which psalm did you quote when we were talking about I don't know. Pam, do you know which? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you said song. These masks, man, they've got to go. <laughs> Any other questions? I know this is hard stuff. I know. Um, but it's important to build our theological toolbox. You know, when, if you have to share Jesus with somebody, they may start asking questions. You know, Jonathan reminded me last week of uh, this really funny thing on YouTube. It's called... Uh, St. Patrick explains the, the Trinity to the Irish. And it's a cartoon, and so they have St. Patrick, well, and he uses all these terrible analogies. You know, the Trinity is like uh, water in its three forms. Uh, liquid, ice, and vapor. And then these two little Irish dudes goes, no, no, Patrick, that's modalism. Or he says, uh, well, it's, it's like these three leaves on the clover. And the, the two little dudes say, no, no, Patrick, that's partialism. It's really funny, but it's, it's good to develop your theological toolbox so that, uh, and that's why creeds were written. So finally, at the end of this cartoon, St. Patrick recites the Athanasian Creed, and the two little Irish dudes say, oh, why didn't you say that at the beginning? You know, human analogies are terrible for the Trinity. You know, this is bad enough. This is not an analogy. It's kind of a schematic, but any other questions?
Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you do exist outside of time and in time. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us here today. Um, we praise you for the bodily resurrection of our Lord, and we look eagerly to that day when he returns. In the meantime, Lord, be present in our midst as we worship you and partake of the sacrament of Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.